I would hope that President Trump would have a National Security Council that is televised like The Apprentice. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, and we're joined by Washington by a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the table, FP columnist Julia Yaffe. Hi. Julia is also a contributing writer for Politico (laughs) magazine and Highline, but we have her here anyway. Also joining us from Washington is FP's executive editor for the web, Ben Pauker. And calling into the studio from her haven in Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. I want to begin by thanking all our dedicated ER nerds for continuing to submit ideas, many of which are pretty good, some of which not so good. We appreciate your enthusiasm and hope you'll keep them coming. The ER mugs have become such a hot commodity that we're now going to have to start choosing five ER nerds of the week, those who have the best ideas. So send us your most brilliant suggestions, and you may get a mug. And it may actually arrive at your home unbroken, although that doesn't seem to happen so much. We're at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So, recently, from our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from Brooklyn, and from Palo Alto, we had the following conversation. Corey, the last time I saw you was at the Aspen Strategy Group, where you were one of the few women, and where the main topic was the Republican revolt against the Trump campaign. How did you enjoy all that? (laughs) Well, um, I guess I can say that I'm revolting. Because I was among the 50 signatories of that letter asserting that in the judgment of those of us who have worked at high levels and jobs directly with the president of the United States, Donald Trump is unsuited by temperament, by policy, and by practice from being commander in chief. Also by probably haircut and you know, you underestimate the number of bad haircuts American presidents have had over time, David. You know, Corey, I was 100 percent sure that you would respond that way and would then say, take a look at Millard Fillmore with that strange little flip that he used to wear. I was so tempted to go straight to Millard Fillmore, David. Yeah, well, that's your anti-democratic leanings um, uh, and your Hey, what was he called? Old Kinderhook? Or the <laughs> club he was from was called Old Kinderhook, which is where the term OK comes from. The real focus of the Aspen Strategy Group was talking about the structure of the U.S. national security apparatus. You actually gave a paper on that. And although everything that we say at meetings like that are protected by Chatham House rules, which essentially means we can't talk about them directly, do you want to talk a little bit about what the next president of the United States might want to do to fix up and improve the national security apparatus? Sure. Uh, Let me say two things. First, on the paper that I gave, it's a project that I've been doing with Will Wexler from the Center for American Progress, interviewing a whole bunch of folks 
who have worked at high levels in the national security system. And uh, what we concluded is that lots of folks who look at how to make the interagency function better imagine a sort of Goldwater Nichols for the interagency. And we don't think that's a very useful way to approach the problem because the challenges are actually matching an interagency process to the president's management style. And that too often Goldwater Nichols approaches assume that you can leach the politics and personality out of it. And what we concluded, Will and I concluded from talking to a whole bunch of smart folks who've worked at high levels in the system is that the key is actually figuring out how is the president comfortable getting information? How are they comfortable making decisions? Do they have a cabinet that they trust? Because the less the president trusts the members of their cabinet, the more that will have to be done by the NSC. Uh, so, so that's. Did you, did you notice? Did you notice when you were talking to all the smart folks that you didn't talk to me? Well, David, you uniquely have written two very good books on this. So we felt like we had your testimony already in written form, which I is... Felt, I felt excluded. <laughs> in that case, we will formally interview <laughs> you, David, although we, we, you have been one of the best educators on this subject. So, Corey, can I ask, do you think the system is broken as it currently is? No, I don't. And as a matter of fact, one of the really interesting things that both Madeleine Albright and Evo Dalder told us is that President Obama actually has the interagency process he wants because he so little trusts the cabinet departments to have the kind of restraint that he wants them to have. And he doesn't trust them not to leak. He doesn't trust them to give him good counsel. He does everything inside the NSC, and the only That's way That's beautiful. I love it. I, 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 I love this. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's like Obama doesn't trust the cabinet to departments to do as little as he wants them to do. <laughs> That's right. But action, action, could, action might break out. But isn't the bloated, big NSC that David has written about so much, isn't part of that to bring and rotate people through into the White House? So don't you still have some of those problems there? Oh, you do. And I by no means would suggest that the Obama interagency is well-functioning. I'm just saying you can't fix it because the president is the problem. And so the Goldwater-Nichols model doesn't work because the president's not going to use the system. And it's not just he's not just the problem because he co-founded ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that, Julia. What evidence do you have and why are you accusing the president? Oh, I just saw some tweets. Julia, you're so reckless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't say it. Um, I just, you know, some people have said uh, people are saying we should Many look into say. it. Many people say. Many people. <laughs> Many. We should look into Many. it. Yeah. It's true. It, he could be. I mean, he's he's not American and he's a Muslim. Right. Um, and they're honoring him, according so to Trump. So I have so. a really um, I have a conspiracy theory based on this, which is that finally the United States government has gotten good at the tradecraft of countering violent extremists. And that is that this entire Trump ridiculousness 
of saying President Obama founded ISIS is an elaborate countering violent extremism ploy to enrage al-Baghdadi, the actual founder of ISIS. <laughs> Counterprogramming oh. ISIS's message. I just think it's yet another way in which Trump is echoing ideas and um, talking points coming out of Moscow for, I mean, as, as soon as ISIS appeared on everybody's radar, you know, two years ago, Russia, the Kremlin, Kremlin-controlled TV has all be, have always been saying that uh, ISIS is a direct byproduct of our intervention in Iraq, in um, Syria, and in the Middle East in general, that, they're, that we're now fighting people who have our weapons and that we created them. So, Julia, do you think it's an improvement in the U.S. national security process to have all of the decisions run through the Kremlin as you believe they would be in the Trump administration? <laughs> I don't think they'd be run through the Kremlin. I think they'd be run from the Kremlin uh, into the White House. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Corey, why didn't you suggest an improvement like that? That's an excellent point. Yeah. Um, it's a one-person only- NSC. Putin. If only we had a government that was streamlined for efficiency instead of protecting individual liberties, it would be entirely possible to undertake the authoritarian model that Donald Trump so obviously favors, whether running it through Beijing or Moscow or you know Mugabe's government, we could choose. Well, okay, that's interesting. I didn't think all eyes would turn to Harare for the next model, but let's Let's think about this a second. Corey's central thesis is that the president gets the national security apparatus he deserves. So let's start with Ben and go around the panel. What national security apparatus do you think Donald Trump would get? What one does he deserve? Well, I think it would be an angry General Flynn and then the rest of the Trump family, wouldn't it? Ben's exactly right. There would be no institutionalized processes There would be erratic statements uninformed by, you know, policy considerations, the national security of the country, what we have the ability to do or not do. You would have all sorts of confused flailing. The the best outcome you could hope for is the departments battening down the hatches and doing nothing. Okay, well, Ben, yeah, right. Although Ben does raise the interesting prospect of Donald sort of going, so Ivanka, What do you want to do in North Korea? (laughs) You know, I don't think that that's far off. I think that, you know, Trump has already delegated a lot of stuff to his family. Uh, He has put them in key positions across the Trump organization and his companies. I don't think it's a real stretch to say that we would see, you know, a bunch of his kids in serious policy positions making decisions or at least, you know, in informal roles, shouting down generals or, you know, disregarding the advice of the secretary of state. You know, I think it would be a highly personalized presidency. And for many reasons, that's a very scary one. It's not one that considers facts and reason. It's not one that makes seems to make logical decisions. It's not one that has coherent policy positions. Um, so, you know, it would be a reflexive, reactive you know, presidency dominated by personality. But doesn't that uh, isn't that part of his appeal? And going back to the the letter of fifty that we started with, isn't his whole point and his point has always been, and in some ways it's been Bernie Sanders's point, which is, okay, all you fancy pants experts with your fancy pants policy recommendations and briefing binders, 
look where you've gotten us. Uh, the Middle East is a mess. Russia's kicking sand in our face everywhere. China has us uh, over a barrel. You know, that all these processes and all this expertise has have gotten us nowhere at best. And so I would hope that President Trump would have a National Security Council that is televised like The Apprentice, and it would be called The Council. And he'd be nice. flanked by Melania and Ivanka, nice. who share the yeah, role of wife. And, you know, and like, and you'd have, <laughs> and you'd have. That's weird. Now it's getting weird. It's Go been on. weird. I didn't make it weird. Now you're getting weird. <laughs> now, well, it's just having his daughter play his wife. I mean, it's sort of Greek tragedy kind of. Well, they've deal, been, they, you know? I mean, they've been doing that, I think, as long as she's been alive. Ivanka. Nice. Wow. I, there's a creepiness about that. Yeah, you've seen the pictures. That's a whole- of her like sitting but on the, the whole... bed and hugging him and like kissing him on the bed. Oh, oh my God! When oh she's my like God. But fourteen. This is, this is perverse and disturbing. But what a great television show! Right, the right. Council. And the council starring Could Donald not Trump. Take your eyes off it. And then Kim you're, you're fired. Un. But yeah, exactly. Kim Jong Un, you're fired. Well, missiles, no. you're fired. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> off with his head. You're fired to the missiles. Uh, no, so, I like it. I like and, it, but. And at ever, at the end of each show, he'd fire a nuclear weapon because, like he said, what is the point of having these things if we're not using them? It's the Chekhov approach to nuclear weapons. Like if, <laughs> Which if is you, that if you have if a gun appears in the first act, it has to go off in the third exactly. act. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted you to know that I had a well-rounded education. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, elegantly Julia. filled in, David. Thank you, Julia. You know you follow situations and the former Soviet Union very closely for a lot of reasons. Some of the people that do advise Trump seem to have strangely close ties there. There's pictures of nutty General Flynn at an RT dinner. With Jill um, Stein. With nutty Jill Stein. There's some of his other advisors with close ties in the region. But talk a little bit, because you know a lot about this. I just want your take on the Trump-Russia tie and how that might weave itself into this Trump national security apparatus. So hashtag my take is um, I think we have to be very careful. What I, It's been very frustrating to see um, the, um, the media really over-exaggerating the connection and really over-exaggerating Putin's capabilities to the point where you're seeing stories about how Trump is a Putin plant. He's a, there was a piece over the weekend in the Huffington Post about how he's like a he was like a sleeper cell agent that the that the Kremlin has been courting for decades first through his uh, Czechoslovak born wife Ivana then Slovenian born wife Melania I mean that was that was kind of parody but it's I've had people ask me that in a very serious way like did his Eastern European wives soften him up for um, and make him more ready to accept the Kremlin line. I think that's absurd. Um, I think we don't know a lot of stuff yet. I think the Manafort connection is very suspicious, but I think Manafort is a true mercenary, and I don't know that he really believes in anything the Kremlin is saying, but he's a perfect partner for the Kremlin because he's perfectly cynical, and you can easily do business with somebody like that. What about the money? What about the money trail? To the the money trail. Business? We actually like. Uh, let's talk when we see some facts. What we do know. No, no. 
it's much more fun to speculate. <laughs> I, I just think we're getting into, you know, I spent three years as a reporter uh, in Russia and then going back and forth before and after that. And it gets so frustrating to hear Russians that the State Department is paying uh, pro- protesters to come out and protest against Vladimir Putin. Like people going to these deep uh, Cold War fantasies. And it's just it's so absurd. And I always thought Americans were kind of had kind of moved on from this. And uh, it turns out it's not true. So I think there is a money trail. We just haven't really found it yet um, or have just found the kind of the tip of the money iceberg. The real estate deals, on one hand, um, anybody doing real estate in, say, London, New York, and Florida is going to be dealing with a lot of shady money from the former Soviet Union, from the Gulf, from China, from Africa, people parking their money in safe places um, because keeping your money at home is not really an option. It's too risky. The government can always take it from you. So is that just money that's being parked for safekeeping in, uh, you know, in spending $95 million on a house that Trump used to own? Or is are, are they paying a premium hoping that later down the line that they will have a receptive audience with Trump? But you'd have to have a crystal ball to know that, you know, back in like, what, 2006, that uh, Trump would be where he is today. Um, well, actually, well, 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 you'd, you'd, you'd have to have a bad crack habit. That's perhaps um, or, you know, some old history of LSD use. Um, I think that what we do know is or what we know with a higher degree of certainty is things like the DNC hack being carried out by the Russians, the connections between WikiLeaks and the Russians, the connections between Roger Stone, who is an advisor to Trump, who said yesterday that he's in contact with Julian Assange. These are things we know. And. Reporters have to dig instead of writing hot takes about, you know, how he's uh, Putin's plant. Um, I'm currently digging into uh, some of these things, but, you know, it's laborious. You really have to like these. A lot of these people are not part of the problem is nobody knows who these people are, even in, you know, Russia circles. People don't know who these they're very much black boxes. And we have to we have to dig into it before we start doing the Red October, Hunt for Red October stuff. Okay, Corey, enough. I mean, here we have Julia sort of reigning in our parade and saying <laughs> we need facts and, and so forth. And this is nowhere nearly as inflammatory as it ought to be. Um, let's take your perspective. Here is Trump. He's got a national security apparatus. You've studied, you've just written about how the president gets the apparatus he deserves. And he's actually got nobody in it who actually knows anything about running the national security apparatus because everybody in the Republican Party who does know about it wants to have nothing to do with them. So what do we end up with there? Well, I I am not too worried for a couple of reasons. First, because I have great confidence in the ultimate good judgment of the American people. And I, and I don't believe he will be elected. But second... You know, the we focus very often on the way that the the political appointees who come in with an administration run the government. But in fact, what they mostly do is make sure that the president's political objectives get carried through in the departments of government. And the departments of government are actually pretty good at running the government by themselves. So I'm not worried that the American military will be able to figure out how to continue to do their jobs without 
uh, Trump folks coming in in big numbers, good people coming in in big numbers in the administration. I'm not worried that the Foreign Service and the Civil Service will still be able to figure out how to do things. What I expect will happen Because as you said, the Republican national security establishment has almost to a person refused to support Trump. What will happen is that the White House won't be able to connect to the departments, and that may not be a bad outcome for the country in a Trump administration. All right. Well, that's interesting. Ben, please add an air of irrationality to this discussion. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, Corey, I think might be a little, I mean, a little bit blithe. Um, I could see, you know, I think we all know a bunch of people here who work at the State Department or career foreign service officers. I'd find it a little bit hard that these people would want to come to work, you know, under a glowering, smiling picture of Trump every day. I think we might see some serious defections from key positions uh, and then, a, you know, a crazy race for Trump to throw anyone that he's passed in the hallway uh, into an ambassadorship, which has serious consequences. You know, getting back to the Russia stuff, there's one thing about Trump is that he is, you know, a, a, an instinctive political actor and he knows what's a useful tool. And right now, Russia is a tool in his benefit. I don't think, I think Julia's right. The American people don't fear Russia. I, they think of Putin as a shirtless sort of comic book weirdo. Strong man, but he's a bond. Exactly. He's a bond villain. He's far away. You know, in in some sense, we can sort of understand the guy. Just just how many nuclear weapons does he have? Fair enough. But I don't think, you know, he has the best nuclear weapons. (laughs) Look, you know, millennials don't wake up worrying about nuclear war the way, you know, a generation before did. They don't. That's not a potent present fear. We did you say millennials to, or did you say millennials or Melania? Melania, I don't know. She worries. She I don't know what she worries about. She's got it pretty good. Um, I don't think the fear oh, of nuclear oh, really? war. Or, until recently, next, until recently. If you woke up next to Donald Trump every morning, I don't know if you'd feel the same way. Uh, that's uh, something I don't but, have to worry about, thankfully. <laughs> but what, yeah. I, I just wanted to jump on what Ben was saying. I think what's been really interesting to watch is um, I think. People in the kind of D.C. foreign policy space have been watching to see how, uh, like, to gauge how high the careerist opportunist meter would go in in the foreign policy establishment and how many people would say, well, you know, I should I don't I don't agree with the guy and he's a little nuts, but, you know, at least he should be surrounded with with good uh, moderating influences. And I, you know, I need to serve my country. And he'd be better with me staffing him than with, you know, Paul Manafort and all kinds of other unheard of people. So we'll see what happens um, if he wins and there's actual jobs to fill, like who's going to be a secretary of state or who's going to be his uh, national security advisor. But so far, it's been interesting to see how... um, little of that you've seen among the foreign policy establishment of people of people kind of putting aside their disgust with Trump and saying like you know it's I, the country needs me hey Corey I, I, and I need this job I have a question you know that letter that you signed and I think it was the second letter that you signed it was the first was the war on the rocks one am I right yeah um you know Copeland and Brian McGrath did the first one mm-hmm. and John Bellinger did the second one do you guys so, just have letter writing parties <laughs> is it awesome 
It's great. This is a wild group. Mm-hmm. You get, you know, Elliot Cohn a little drunk. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Throw in secret anagrams and stuff. Um, but no, like what was – I wanted to understand what the point of the letter was. I mean is it to sort of stake a flag and say – to make your mark in history and say this is not a good idea and I – you know, to to sort of establish this group as um, the sane – establishment, the same guard of foreign policy? Or is it actually a political tool? Like, do you think that this letter has an effect on the American people? I mean, yes, it's in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and we write about it at FP. But is that working? So I agree with you that, you know, Trump voters are unlikely to be swayed by this collective of people. And the the challenge that Julia brought up I've gotten a lot in media interviews about the letters, which is you people screwed up the world. Don't you don't think you can tell us how to do it better? And I think the answer to that is that, first of all, they're right that we made a bunch of mistakes on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular. But by 2006, we had largely corrected them with the surge Moreover, if you think national security policy is difficult to do with experienced, dedicated, well-meaning people, just imagine how difficult it's going to be to do with people who are as reckless and uninformed as the people around Donald Trump. So you're likely to get a lot worse outcomes than we got. And the other thing, though, is what's what I thought was really interesting about, in particular, Elliot and Brian McGrath's letter in War on the Rocks uh, last winter was that it served to create a firewall in the community of national security experts that made it harder for people to go and support Trump because this group, it may not be respected uh, by average Americans, but it is respected by the establishment of conservative foreign policy types. And it made it harder to cross the line and, and support Trump denying him the validation that I think the Trump campaign had wanted by coming and trying to get all of us to support and endorse him. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. Well, I think there's another point that was embedded there, which I think will be the point in which we will conclude this podcast and uh, uh, we'll perhaps we'll carry some of these themes forward into the next one. But it's not a point that's brought up very often, even in the pages of foreign policy. Um, And that is foreign policy is hard. You know, the people who do this work are doing something very difficult. They don't control all the variables. They don't control most of the variables. And they don't even understand many of the variables. And yet action is often required with less information than you want to have. And the, 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 the GOP team and the Democratic team, both, if you look at history, have made equal numbers of mistakes. Different kinds of mistakes, but different numbers of mistakes. Um, And that's one of the reasons, and perhaps not as flashy a reason, but it's one of the reasons that having somebody like Donald Trump be president is so dangerous, because foreign policy is hard and experience is necessary. And even when you take the best minds and you give them a lot of experience, they make mistakes. But if you take the reckless and the irresponsible and the untutored and the unprincipled, and you put them in those situations, the outcomes are likely to be dramatically worse. We'll talk about some of those in upcoming episodes. In the meantime, I want to thank 
Ben Pauker, Julia Yaffe, Corey Shockey for their participation in this lively discussion and ask all of you who are out there listening to come back soon for the next ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.